Hello, everyone. It's me, Allison. The show is about to start, but just real fast, a quick reminder. I want to tell you guys, um, if you are doing some shopping, perhaps some Black Friday shopping, holiday shopping, etc. Like Christmas type uh, shopping? Christmas type, any sort of shopping at all. I have put together some lists on Amazon. Lists with things stuff. on them? Daniel, just... <laughs> Pipe down for one second. (laughs) Beauty stuff, makeup stuff, home stuff, kids stuff, podcast equipment, books I recommend, all of this stuff. And Daniel's stuff? Oh, yeah. Daniel's Corner, where I put stuff that I know that he likes. But Daniel has recently gotten way more involved. And he put together a special Christmas spectacular gift guide for you. You guys will not even believe it. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what's on there, but it's literally uh, some things. Lots of things. And well, a whole big stuff. caption explaining if his you process. you know someone who's exactly like me, they are going to love it. And here's where you go to see all of this. Amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. Amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. And we'll be adding to it. It's nonstop, you guys. Yeah. Okay, here's the show. Bye. You guys, I lied. I said the show was starting right now, but I have one more quick announcement. I'm co-hosting a new podcast. It's brand new. It's called Upworthy Weekly. I'm co-hosting it with a guy named Todd Perry, who I'm having so much fun with, although he is wrong about so many things, especially Christmas music, but also other stuff. But anyway, uh, Upworthy Weekly, we come out on Saturdays. Please give it a listen. Subscribe. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a comment, a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps out the show so much, especially because we are brand new. As I've said, between one and four times right now, I've lost track. But anyway, please give it a listen. Uh, It's a lighthearted news podcast. We're taking a look at the most popular and engaging stories from the week before that ran on Upworthy. And it's, uh, it's just what your holidays need. And then when the holiday, when we're past the holidays, it's just what that part of the year needs. It's just exactly what you need. Please listen to it. Upworthy Weekly, new episodes every Saturday, wherever you get your podcasts. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, we'll have the good times never end. Allison Rosen, Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm delighted to bring in my guest in a moment. But first, I must chat with Tony Thaxton. He's back. He's back from his tour that didn't happen. Tony, <laughs> welcome back. I'm back. And ha- everything went exactly as it was supposed to. <laughs> it definitely didn't get yes. postponed and then no. canceled. You guys definitely all didn't get COVID. And you definitely mm-hmm. didn't regret having driven ac- across the country instead of flying so that you could drop your dog off like two states over. You know what? Actually, in a weird way, some of that that you said was actually kind of true. Uh, oh, good. Well, because, the one, we didn't all get COVID. Four of the five of us got COVID. And, who's uh, who's the, the lucky holdout? Uh, our one guitar player, Josh. Uh, he, he managed to somehow escape without it. Um, so... That was almost true. And then, uh, I, I, when I was, when it was time to come home, though I had to do that giant three day drive again so soon after I did it the first time, 
there was part of me that was like, I'm really kind of glad I don't have to go to the airport. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I was okay with that part, even though it was a three-day drive that's really long. But honestly, I don't know. I didn't really mind the drive all that much. There was a long stretch of time there in my childhood where the Rosens did not fly because my parents uh-huh. uh, are paranoid. And <clears throat> I don't know if it was like the TWA hijacking of 1982. I'm just revealing how very old I am. or I don't know what it was, but they were just like, we don't feel safe getting on a plane with the last name Rosen. And, but also like the stress of hustling everyone to the airport is such a pain in the ass that I think they realize that it's just with kids, it's just easier to drive everywhere. Yeah. Even without kids, like I don't want to deal. I would have been dealing with likely LAX and O'Hare, like two of the worst places in the world. (laughs) Right. And you got to see that I didn't, I don't know if I even knew this, but I definitely know it now from your post that it snows at the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I literally, it never crossed my mind that that was even something that happened. I just never thought about it. And uh, yeah, as I started getting closer to it, I was like, oh, didn't think about this being a, a potential problem. It wasn't a problem, but uh, right. visibility was not great once I got there. So, And now you're back. And if I remember correctly, what you said is you said, Allison, I'm back and I'm never leaving ever again. Yeah, I once again, nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. So I know that Motion City Soundtrack has announced a rescheduled tour, but you're not going on that one. You're just going to stay here and produce, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's what's happening. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad you learned your lesson that going on tour is a bad idea. Yeah, was this all your fault? (laughs) Did you pull some strings here? I mean, maybe I said a wish as I threw a penny into that's how it is huh yeah you know that i'm lying because i haven't been even been anywhere where i could throw a penny (laughs) nor do i have pennies on me all of that is a thing of the past those that memory and i did i would stand at fashion island and i would throw pennies into the fountain hoping that my crush from tennis camp would be in my class at school and i (laughs) don't think he was no until Actually, this was someone, because I wrote in my diary about throwing coins into a fountain over this guy. Then when I was in drama class my junior year, I had all but forgotten about him, and he was there. But then he asked a junior to a dance, and but I was like okay with it, because at that point I had moved on. This is not a good story, but you know who I, does I, have... I, I just, I'm sorry. I know we're bringing the guests in, but I just have to say, you told me all that, and I do think the most fascinating part, and I'm going to speak for the listener also. Did I went to tennis camp? Yes. I know. I... <laughs> Like our guest, I had like our guest who has written about this extensively in her book. Um, I was a child whose parents were like, "We got to get this weight situation under control." Uh, and in fact, I'm looking forward to talking to my guest about that. So when I was five, they started me playing tennis, which was like, and I'm not an athletic person, but that was like the only sport I was good at because I started playing so young. But then in high school, I was on the tennis team for roughly three and a half weeks. Because our the reason I stopped the reason I joined was because I played tennis and I really wanted the sweatshirt. The reason I stopped <laughs> was because our warm ups were two mile runs, which to me I can't even do that. At no point in my life could I easily 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 yeah, easily run two up? miles. That's not a warm up. That's a workout. Yeah. And I went during the summer. I started doing the warm ups, and this is the first time, not the last time, the first time this happened to me, I had to pull to the side to dry heave. That's how much I couldn't handle those warm-ups. <laughs> so anyway, I'm 
on the tennis team with these like Orange County, California grows Olympians. Like these are really good athletes. So all of a sudden my having proper form and having played since I was five could not compete with these like natural, really good athletes. So I was out of there pretty quickly. Um, but anyway, yeah, I used to go to tennis camp every summer. It was not sleepaway camp, um, but I really enjoyed it. It was like a really good time. Wow. Yeah. Who knew? I know. I don't talk about it often. I won a trophy for... Do you want to guess what, what the trophy I won was? Uh, uh, best uh, ball handling. <laughs> that, that sounded <laughs> dirty. I didn't mean that dirty. <laughs> no. I literally could not think of a single thing about tennis. I would like to think I deserve an award for that. But no, for best sportsmanship. Isn't that so sad? <laughs> uh, that sounds about right, though. Yeah. Excuse you. <laughs> I, that's what I, I probably wouldn't even have gotten that. So it's just meant I had a great attitude, even though I wasn't very good. <laughs> anyway, my guest today is someone whom I've been following on social media for a long time. And I think she is hilarious. Uh, she is a writer. She is a mom. She's just written a memoir called This Will Be Funny Later. A memoir, and I'm holding it up, youtube.com slash Allison Rosen, where you can see the cover, which looks like a, a VHS tape, which yeah, is very like fun. Um, but it's, uh, it's really good. And, uh, her name is Jenny Pentland. P- please put your hand. I, I messed it up, Tony. Oh no. I've, I'm so out of practice. Please put your hands together for Jenny Pentland. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Um, so, yes, I don't know if you remember, we exchanged direct messages many, many years ago uh, where I invited you on my show and you said, yes, you would like to come on. You're like, oh, but by the way, I'm in Hawaii. And then I said, mm-hmm. and this also may be something that caused the pandemic. I don't know. I said, oh, <laughs> I only do in-persons. And you're like, okay, but my sister and I have used blog talk radio or something like that. Yes. And it sounds really good. Yeah. But then I held firm to my only in person. And then you had to go ahead and write a book and cause a pandemic to be on my show. So (laughs) I don't know if it was worth it, but I'm glad you're here now. I definitely caused that pandemic in so many ways. I did. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad to be here, too. And yeah, I think like being in Hawaii when I moved there, I was like, oh, good. I won't have to do anything or go anywhere again. So when people told me, oh, no, only in person, I was like, darn, I guess (laughs) I can't. Yeah. That was nice while I was hiding out there for a while. Well, I what I remember is I started following you because there was a picture of like a beagle or some super cute dog and your comment was DILF. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was so funny. And I followed you because of that. And then I put it together that I had actually heard about you because I've had Christina Pajitsky on my show a bunch. And she had oh, talked yeah. about her childhood and high school and stuff like that and how she was really good friends with you and with your family and like how much, you know, being near your family had meant to her. And then I'm like, oh, this is her. Yeah, that was strange. Like I didn't talk to her for a long time because we lost touch when I was moving around. And I was watching the real or road rules one time. And I was like, is that that can't be the girl I've been looking for forever. Like we were best friends when we were like 13 and 14. And that was like early Google days where it was really hard to find her, especially because her last name, I couldn't remember how to spell it. (laughs) 
And um, I finally found her. And when we hooked up again, it was all these weird, like just synchronicities and the fact that she was doing stand up. It was so um, it was just funny. It was weird. Mm -hmm. You know, what's weird is I have always found her voice and delivery to be a tiny bit like your mom, Roseanne Barr. Is that something that you ever thought? Um, When you say it now, I can see it. Like I always kind of felt like she was family. We bonded. We like saw each other from across the classroom and locked eyes and we're just friends. And from then on and got in a lot of trouble together. And she was at my house a lot. And I think, you know, when people come around our family, they tend to study us in some ways. I mean, probably because they're like, how is this mess real? (laughs) But (laughs) um yeah, maybe she picked up some of it. I'm not sure. I think a lot of it's like L.A. inflection, too. Mm-hmm. And I after being in Hawaii, it's a very specific accent out here. You know, I never encountered anyone saying that I had an accent until I went to college when people started saying and I went to college in California, but there were a lot of people who were not from <laughs> California and they started they were saying that I had a California accent. So I had to accept that I must. And then just in the last few weeks, people will repeat back things I say with a real Valley Girl inflection. And I'm thinking, is it coming out more? Because I just had a guest on and I mentioned that we had a dog named Woofy and she went, Woofy. (laughs) (laughs) So if I'm beginning to sound like someone in the Californians or the movie Valley Girl, someone do an intervention. (laughs) Um, Okay, so Jenny, your book is so good. And like, I feel like some memoirs... um, can be kind of thin and yours is very dense there. It's, it's just, it's packed with insight and it's packed with stories. Uh, and it's so good. I am, let's see, I am a little over a third of the way through it. So there's a lot, a lot about your life that I still don't know. And I'm starting to see some story because your book just came out. It came out on the, tell us the date it came out. 18. It came out on the 18th. Okay, so it just came so out. I have no idea what day it is. <laughs> no, it, what is time anyway? So it just came out, mm-hmm. and there's a, been a lot of press lately um, a, about the book. And so a lot of the stuff I'm reading about is covering a part of your – no, excuse me. A lot of stuff I'm reading about in the press is like covering a part of your life. So when you went to different like behavior modification teen programs and all that stuff, um, covering a part of your life that's past – where I've read so far, because I'm at the point now where your sister was just sent away. um, And your mom and your dad are kind of breaking up. So, so fill us in what happened? Well, you're about to get to the good stuff. But um, that book, I took about a third of it out. Because I was like, how am I going to write a whole memoir with 70,000 words? Because that was kind of the the uh, limit they gave me. And I was like, Oh, God, I have like 120,000 words, I had to take so much stuff out of it. Um, which was probably the hardest part of, of writing the book was editing it afterwards. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, it, that's what happened. We had our early life. It was pretty normal and, um, uh, like suburban Colorado, Denver. And then, um, uh, my mom started doing stand up in like local comedy clubs when I was, I think like five or six, she started and, um, she, it took a while for her to be seen and have an agent. And then she toured around with Louis Anderson, who passed away today. He yeah. was a big part of, he was actually a big part of it because he saw her stand up and he was like pushing her wherever he went. And he would like put her on stage with him, have her open for him, do a tour with him. And, um, and he was like a big part of having Mitzi Shore see her 
and her um, being able to work at the comedy store in L.A. So she ended up moving out to L.A. before we did and uh, working in the comedy store. And then we came out shortly thereafter because she had a um, Tonight Show appearance. And after that, it was like um, commercial offers and TV show offer and everything. So it kind of just went crazy after that. Um, and then, yeah, like the part you're at after after that happened, my parents ended up like, I think after the first season of the Roseanne show, uh, they got divorced and like our family was just totally out of control and just trying to have two working parents and going from where we came from to where we were at now and just not fitting in. And we were teenagers too, teenage girls. And, um, we're just like out of control and nobody knew what to do. And like you were saying earlier about weight loss and stuff there, it was like the, the self-help, uh, time that was just the times of like self-help and I think like a lot of the weight loss programs and and self-betterment programs and all of that like the dark side of that mm-hmm. was probably the the lockups and the cult inspired boarding schools and, and that kind of stuff so I ended up being in those places from 13 to 18 I went to nine different places um, my sister who you just read about getting sent away was in 11 different places and there were mental institutions, rehabs, um, boarding schools that were like est inspired or like synanon inspired, um, eating disorder clinics. Did I already say wilderness survival? No, you did not. But said. okay, so there was a couple of those, yeah. And you had to skin a squirrel, is that right? I didn't have to. I volunteered so I could get a little bite of it because <laughs> there was like seven of us and a squirrel. Like you know, it doesn't really feed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was always interested in like, um, like survival things. So I I was into learning how to, how to skin it and everything. But yeah, I did skin it and I ate its leg and it was good. It was. What did it taste like? Chicken. I have not gotten to the squirrel part yet, but I think I saw that. Oh, in... uh, sorry. See, oh, no, no, no. I feel like I'm no, you didn't. No, I spoiled it. it. I spoiled it because I read about it in page <laughs> six, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you guys just saw a squirrel running around and, and grabbed it or... Was it like a roadkill um, thing? Yeah, it was a much longer process of trying to slingshot oh, it wow. down, hunt it via slingshot, that one of the counselors out there had a slingshot, and um, he hit it a good five or six times with a rock before oh. it was done. Yeah. It was brutal. Yeah. yeah. And so this was a behavior modification program, or was that a weight? That wasn't a weight loss thing, Were right? they? Were they murdered animals with rocks in front of me? <laughs> yes, they were modifying my behavior. God. Um <laughs> uh yeah that wasn't a weight loss well actually it wasn't it was for behavior modification but a lot of those programs that were for that my parents would send me to and in order to have the insurance cover it or justify sending me there to the counselors or whoever were in charge of intake it, then my weight was always that was always like used as um a reason for me right. to be there and keep me there. So, and at one, of, yeah, at one of them, you it. were wondering, like, is this right? You were wondering, like, am I crazy? Why am I still here? I've been here so long. And then you found out that your insurance company was paying a million a year for you. Yes, and that was like a huge turning point for me. So, in the first, um, the first program that I was in was Community Psych- Psychiatric Center. That's the name. It's since been shut down. Like I think every program that I went to has been shut down uh, for malpractice, basically. And uh, a lot of them opened under other names, which is what companies do when they get sued into oblivion. 
Um, but the first one I was in, I was there nine months and I saw these meth addicts kind of come in and out for in like four to six week programs. And I was like, wow, I must really be nuts. Mm-hmm. And there was another kid in there who was there the same amount of time as me. And he had tried to kill his parents with a loaded gun, but the gun jammed. Like he oh didn't like have a moment of being like, no, I'm not going to do this. He tried and it didn't work. And uh, I was there the same length of time as him. And I mean, I knew I was Malvi and, you know, a little brat, but I went to this one counselor and uh, he was he wasn't a traditional trained counselor. He was like an AA um, volunteer, like he was in AA and he was volunteering to work with the kids. And he was really cool. Those were always the only people I got along with were people who had gone through and knew things from having been in it as opposed to mm-hmm. learning in books. So he was like outside smoking in his leather jacket one night. And I, I like I tried to get my file. This file was thick and because I had been there so long and they were always marking something in there. And I was like, I'm going to get that file because I'm going to see what's wrong with mm-hmm. me. And uh, and then I'm going to have fun with it. Like I thought if I'm crazy, then I'm going to like, you know, you can start painting walls and burning <laughs> shit down. Nobody's going to say anything. <laughs> So I was like, I, I could really have fun with this if I knew what was up. So I asked the nurse for my um, for my file. And she's like, "That no, you can't see that. It's uh, whatever the word is, like private. And I'm like, "That you literally have a file on me and I can't see it. And so I broke into the office. I got like pulled out. Um, I really was trying to get my hands on there. They ripped it out of my hands and they told me to go outside and calm down or I was going to get put in restraints. And Jeez. so I went outside and, this, yeah, they've restrained kids in there. They still do it. They do? They, these um, programs still go on? Oh, yeah. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm, like, so fired up. If it was just stuff that, you know, was 80s oriented or 90s oriented, no, they're still going on. Um, they The Ed was standing outside and I went to him and I just said, like, hey, am I nuts? Because, like, let's party. <laughs> and he was he took, like, a big drag off his cigarette and he was like, uh, no, you're not nuts. You have the best mental health care insurance I've ever seen because it was motion picture health and welfare. Mm-hmm. So it was for actors and actresses, which they tend to need larger policies for mental health <laughs> at times. And he's like, you're worth a million bucks a year. Wow. And I just remember like standing there looking at him and and I knew what it meant intellectually, but I could not internalize for a minute that, you know, I'm a 13 year old kid. Like, how could you how is that something that is allowed Mm -hmm. or legal or that nobody caught on to or like, how is this happening? And uh, I was like, okay. And then I went inside and I ran away that night. But it turns out the real world's even shittier than a mental institution when you're 13. (laughs) So I went back. You know, at, Later. at the point that I'm at in the story, there's nothing yet in your be- – well, first of all, I suspect nothing in any kid's behavior warrants being in these programs. Um, right. But especially nothing – like I think the only misbehaving you've really done is like spray paint, spray painting the parking garage or I don't know, like a slight terrorizing of a babysitter. But do you feel like you were like out of control or a bad kid or any of that stuff? Um, I think every everything in our lives was getting out of control at that point. And instead of waiting until I was already, I don't know, doing whatever I would have done um, when my parents saw that that w- that behavior was starting and they saw my sister starting and she was stealing cars and all of that. Um, at that point, my mom revealed to my sister, like, you can stay on this path and you are going to get pregnant. And she told my sister that she had had a baby when she was she got pregnant when she was 17 
And that was like, you know, I think my mom was just afraid that we were going to have to suffer through that same experience. And um, and then also she had all these people in her ear that were invested in keeping the show on track. And Arlene, um, there's a story. Yeah, yeah Arlene. <laughs> There's a um, there's a story in the book about where I had to take a cab ride home at one point because I was lying and said I had a headache because I don't want to take finals because I was failing everything. And they were going to take me to the studio and the cab got lost. So I was gone for like three hours. There's no cell phones, none of that at that time. And um, everybody thought that I was acting out or doing something and they shut down production. Everybody had to go home. It cost the studio like a million dollars. And by the time the cab driver got me back. It was like everybody was pissed at me because I had just like caused this huge thing. And I think they thought I was just out being a brat. And um, and I got sent away the day after that. So I think also there was a lot of like, hey, this kid is really like fucking up these million dollar uh, days that we have here. And my mom had three of us doing that kind of, you know, so I think it was a lot of it was like, um, outside influence, people saying, you know, when you come to Hollywood and you are on TV like this, you have to have a cook, you have to have a nanny, you have to, they had all these experts they wanted to like kind of outsource our care to, um, which in some ways was good. Occasionally it was a good thing. But um, I think, it, you know, if I think she had people in her ear too telling her that, that, uh, you know, this needs to, everything's out of control and we need to control it because we have all these people relying on you. So there's that, that aspect of it too. Um, and then just experts timing with the eighties and nineties, like, you know, how everything was like, uh, fixing some problem. It was all like either with a pill or a project or like a, a program or something. So I think it was just kind of like a perfect, storm of things happening to cause that were you mad about it at the time and are you mad about it now um i'm not mad about it now um i'm mad that it's still happening i'm not mad about my experience anymore um when i was in there yeah i was mad about it i was pissed i i felt like for five years i didn't i i was never heard nothing i said ever was heard um, there's a protocol for driving a wedge between the kids and the parents, because if you call your parents and say, come pick me up, this is awful. They tell your parents, oh, your kid's right on track. That's exactly where they need to be, because, mm. you know, they they know that they're being seen and they know that they're being called out on their bullshit and they're freaking out and they want to just go home and go back into their bullshit. So it, there was a real separation between me and my parents and it was on purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, and that still goes on today just as much as it did then. But I think I was mad because I felt like, um, I could, I just, I wasn't heard at all. And, and then when Ed told me that I was like, oh, I don't even matter as a person at all. I'm a, I'm a commodity. Like this is about money. And, um, I've just felt gross and like trafficked in some way. And, um, and that was at 13, right? That's yeah. Young... I was closer to 14 at that point. Well, but I mean, still that's such a young yeah. age to to yeah. feel commodified. Yeah. And I, and yeah, I was pissed and I was pissed at all the counselors and I let them know it and I messed with them all the time and I drew on the walls and through pretend pee on people, you'll get to that part. But yeah, I, I, I was really pissed off. And I think when I turned it, like in my head, I had my 18th birthday as the marker when all this was going to stop. Nobody could do that to me anymore when I turned 18. So I think once I did turn 18 that I was able to be like, okay, 
they can't touch me now unless I really like need mental health care. Mm-hmm. Like the state determines I do, they're not going to do anything. And, you know, then I felt like um, that threat was gone. And a lot of that anger, I thought it went away. I mean, I definitely have PTSD. I definitely do. And I've been diagnosed with it and I've been trying to work with it. And I think writing a book brought a lot of it back up. And I don't know that I've handled things very well the last few years, but I've tried. So um, I'm not mad, but I'm definitely fucked up if that's how um, <laughs> the right way to say it. This is going to be, I feel like it's a weird question, but what I want to ask you is can- like, how is it that you're not still mad about having or not still mad at your parents if you're not Um, because I uh, first of all I have five kids and my oldest is 21 so I got him through the teens and I have two two teens a preteen and a baby right now um I think as soon as I and I had my first kid when I was 24 so there wasn't that much time between Mm -hmm. me turning 18 and me being a mom that for me to you know sit there and stew in anything I just wanted to get on with my life at that point I felt like I had been, you know, um, like I had just been stripped of of a life for five years. And so I did all kinds of stuff for a few years. And um, then I met my husband and um, and we had a kid pretty quick. And then I think once I was a mom, like once you're a mom, you just see things differently, especially when you with your parents, like Mm -hmm. you see, you go, Oh my God, how did, how did they do this? How did they do this? And then could I have done that? Could I have done what my parents did as gracefully while going through a divorce, stardom press, um, three kids, a daughter that we didn't know about coming back in, having the paparazzi up your ass 24 seven being criticized anytime you even speak or, or look in a direction, um, just having the whole world like chomping at the bit for you to fuck up. Like, I think there's just there's just so much stuff I could not have dealt with. Mm-hmm. And and uh, seeing it from that perspective after I had my son uh, really helped me, like, just kind of let go of all that. And I don't blame my parents. It was just the perfect storm. It was just what the times and how it happened and all of that. And um, they did what they thought they needed to do to keep us safe and and healthy. And they were being told that. And I'm grateful to them for doing that. Also, I would have been at home with, you know, Tom Arnold had they not done that. So <laughs> fuck who's to say that I got the raw end of the deal. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. Just kidding. I was mean. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> well, he is my number one listener. So he will hear this for okay. sure. <laughs> um. <laughs> Oh, you said that you have PTSD that still comes up. How does it manifest? Well, I thought I had my shit together because I was like, hey, I'm out of the institutions. I'm married. I have a kid. I have another kid. I have another kid. And then I'm like, I want to move to Hawaii and like kind of get out of L.A. And um, found out I was pregnant the day I put my house on the market to do that. So uh, did I count four, three kids there? Whatever. (laughs) I was pregnant with my fourth kid and uh, we we were like had an opportunity to go manage my mom's uh, farm property in Hawaii, macadamia nut farm. And I was like, yes, get me out of here, please. Because it was like everywhere I went to target people everywhere I went, every time I left my house, somebody would go, oh, you have your hands full every (laughs) single time. And then other people would ask me if I was the nanny. Somebody asked me if I was LDS. Um, (laughs) 
which is Latter-day Saints because right. they are breeders. Like just, you know, the, I just was over the commentary about having four kids. I went to a sonogram with when I was pregnant with my fourth and the doctor was like, it's a boy. And I was like, oh, and he's and he I was like, oh, it's another boy. And he's like, I thought you'd be excited. And I said, well, it's my fourth. And his jaw like hit the floor. And then he's like, I never see moms your age with four kids and not white ones. And I'm like, I got to get the out of here i have to i gotta leave yeah. la time to leave <laughs> and so we went to hawaii so that the kids would have land and room and all that and i was just so busy with these little kids i mean you just are it's like you both hands and feet are full and just doing something at all times and when my when my youngest son who is now 12 and no longer my youngest son <laughs> but at the time um when he was five he started school and I was sitting at home alone and I was like I need goats and I need to farm and I need to like preserve all my own food and I need to just stay busy and uh, I didn't really realize that that's a PTSD thing to do is to like keep yourself too busy to think or feel Mm. at that same time my oldest turned 13 and I'm gonna get emotional but it's fine Give me a second. Um, when I looked at him across the room and I was like, look at that little because he's got a really round face for people who follow me on Instagram or what. He still looks like a baby at 21. But he really looked a bit ba- like a baby at 13. And I remember like he did something and I was like looking across at him and I was like, oh, my God, he's exactly the age I was when I got sent away. And I was like, he's a baby, like he's a baby. And like he was he was getting a molar, Mm -hmm. like your 13 year old molars. And I was like, fuck. like I thought I was like, did I get molars? (laughs) Mental institution? I don't remember. But like that just kind of set something off. And then I didn't have my hands as busy as I normally did. And I just went into a like a spiral. And like it got to where I couldn't like um, I couldn't leave my house. Um, it started like I went to Costco and I was I mean, I feel this way in Costco still sometimes, <laughs> but I was at Costco and I was doing my crazy running around with the kids. And um, and I was just like up at the register in line and I felt like I was going to faint mm. and I, I couldn't place it. I was having a panic attack, um, but I didn't know what it was. And my heart was racing and um, I really thought I was just going to drop dead in front of my kids. And after that, I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to like, and everywhere I did go, something else would happen that would compound that fear and anxiety even more. And uh, it just got to a point where I couldn't, I couldn't function. Mm-hmm. And I was like in a room with my kids and I'm like, all four of you have to sit in this room with me until your dad gets home from work because I can't do, I can't leave this room and I need to watch you. So you have to sit here. And after that day, I was like, I'm not going to do, I can't do that to my kids. I can't like, um, they were all at the age where they wanted to have friends over. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with another kid. Mm -hmm. I couldn't drive anywhere by myself. It was awful. And, um, I got a therapist and she told me I had PTSD, which that was like, I was like, what (laughs) me? But she, because she was asking me about my life, so I just launched into it, and she was like, just staring at me. And then she's like, did, "I'm like, I don't know why I feel like this." And she's like, "Did you ever think that maybe you have reasons to feel like this?" And I'm like, "No, I never even. What do you mean?" And then I was like, "Oh, okay." So <laughs> you know, then I started kind of trying to pull myself out of it, um, really, because there, there's not a lot of mental health resources 
or resources in general on the big island, mm-hmm. um, which is where I'm living. So I tried to do some like immersion or I don't know if it's called immersion therapy. There's another name for it. But like on my own, like I had this like exposure thing where, therapy. Like, exposure therapy so I would go to Costco and tell my husband go stand on the next aisle and let me go by myself for one one row Mm -hmm. and uh I'm gonna call you if I freak out so like he'd be gone three seconds and I'd be like come get me um and because I couldn't I would freeze I couldn't even get myself out of the Costco it was like real fight or flight and freeze kind of behavior and I just um slowly with his help and with some friends help too um just tried to keep putting myself in situations that were uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and then I swore to myself that I would say yes to anything that anybody presented me with and that's when my friend called and was like are you ready to write a book yet and I I wanted to say no so bad and I was like you can't I can't afford to say no I can't afford to shut off anymore and that's what started this whole fun process and when was that that the book started, or that you got that, was that call? That like three years ago, um, maybe almost even four years ago at this point. It was like three years ago, and we wrote up an outline and we showed it to some people. And Harper Collins said they liked it, and um, we did whatever deal there is to do. I faked the entire thing, including writing the book. I don't even know what happened. My dad helped me with like a timeline, and I just kind of plugged in stories that I remembered. And I had compartmentalized a lot of information into stories as I was growing up as part of a, a way of dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. Like I'll, I'll process this later and it'll be, and it'll be hilarious. Like that's what the title of the book comes from. So that I just did that. And just, I was like, Oh yeah, here's one of those stories that I had like the sauerkraut. Oh, did you get to the sauerkraut? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So like that one, I was like, okay, don't forget. And I mold them over my head so many times over, over the years without ever writing them down that um, I really remember a lot of the details. So that helped too. Mm-hmm. So you worked through the panic attacks and that kind of stuff ultimately without a therapist. Is that right? I had a therapist, but this thing keeps happening to me where I get a therapist and I talk to them and they're like, yes, oh my God, yes. And then they have an existential crisis and quit either being a therapist or they move or they just drop off the face of the planet oh, wow. or they do something really sus. So like that, that's been, I'm on five now. <laughs> um, but this woman, yes, this woman did help me a lot before she ended up moving mm-hmm. and she did end up moving, but um, she helped me start the process and she helped me give it a name and she helped me identify what was going on. And then, um, a lot of it was just, yeah, me doing it without a therapist, not on purpose. Mm -hmm. So I don't suggest that or anything, but that's what I had. And you said that when it was suggested to you that you might have PTSD at first, you were like, what me, which is making me wonder what up to that point, what, how did you think of your upbringing like to your to your what what did what had you thought about everything that had gone down up to that point I thought like it was funny I think as a defense mechanism I was like haha that's hilarious who else would try to get out of taking finals and end up getting locked at a mental institution because you shut down a million dollar episode of a number one sitcom like it's just those kind of ridiculous things always seem to happen to me or in our family um 
So I think I had just made it funny for so long that I, I mean, I knew that there was emotional weight behind it. Like even my tweets, because what the beginning of writing when I had the little kids, um, I found Twitter where we follow each other. And um, that was about all I could do is about 140 characters mm -hmm. with these kids hanging off me and climbing in my hair, lock them in the minivan, go write a tweet <laughs> behind my minivan and get back in the car. Um, so that was like my first starting to write again. And uh, I forgot, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Oh, so like, when I, I always just kind of figured it was sort of funny and that, yeah, there was emotions behind it and I would deal with them um, as they came up, which I thought I was doing. But, you know, when when the panic attacks hit and stuff, I knew there was something bigger. It couldn't have it couldn't have been that simple. But I just thought I'm losing my mind or um, I just have an anxiety disorder runs mm -hmm. in the family. Um, I didn't really think about why or if I could do anything about it. And then when my therapist said that, I was like, why would I have PTSD? Because, you know, PTSD typically until very recently, especially see PTSD. Um, I hadn't heard it talked about except for, you know, people who were in war and, and right. really abusive, really abusive situations. And I felt like my situation always kind of walked that line between really tragic and really funny so that it sort of evened out in a way where it was manageable. Um, but I didn't realize that it eventually evened out because of the huge drops of either or thing and that I had internalized that trauma in a huge way. And even after working through what I did with the with the exposure therapy, um, when I started to write the book, a whole new layer of it came up and I wasn't prepared for that either. And I tried to deal with that one by myself, too, which is why I'm suggesting that you don't do that. Um, and I went nuts. What happened? <laughs> um I just got and I think a lot of it was COVID, too, but I got in the echo chamber of my own head and I was still compartmentalizing feelings. And so they weren't really coming out in the book as much. I had to go back over the book and put the way I felt in in a lot of places because I was just looking at it too objectively. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just was like in a, a kind of like a fugue state, I feel like that whole time. And the only energy that I would have left at the end of the day, I'd want to give to my kids and um and so I just kind of like sort of got in like a little echo chamber and a little bubble in my own head and uh, felt really alone and um, just trying to walk a really fine line without trying to blame anybody or be angry and like all those complicated feelings. But I was still trying to walk that line of understanding where everybody was coming from. So I was trying to be objective and um, it was just a lot. And I think I was also going through some other, well, then I got pregnant too. So there was some hormonal stuff going on. And um, I just sort of like the past year kind of feel like I don't remember it. Like I don't remember a lot of the past year and a half, except for the baby and my kids and uh, kind of grew apart from people that I love and sort of put distance between me and them. And uh just wasn't talking to people on the level that I should have been. I tried to get two therapists. That's the one that said something really sus to me that I was like, okay, nope, not you. Mm. And then the next one that I talked to twice and then she ghosted me. 
I think she fell in a volcano. She went on a trip to volcano and then she never came back. That's a bad trip destination. That what? It's a bad destination. I don't, I don't <laughs> advise going to a volcano. T- take it as a you warning. You can go to Volcano Park. You don't have to go in the volcano. Yeah. But maybe after talking to me, she was like, fuck this shit, planet Earth. <laughs> like you've given me a lot to think about. Um, you know, as, as I was reading the book, I was... I was noticing the way in which you pretty deftly toggle between sharing your own feelings and memories of things and then kind of being like a family historian. You know, I was aware that like, okay, well, you're now describing what was happening for your mom in a way that I'm sure at the time, you know, from her point of view. And, and I was curious, how how was it that you were able to do that? Were were you asking a lot of questions of people to piece together what it must have been like? Are these things that you remember? Um, most of any of the recall that's not like historian stuff uh, is me and things I remember. My dad has been a huge source of help for me. He's a great writer. He wrote his own book that he's finishing too about his experience. And then he is like, just has like rain man memory about like timeline stuff and just incredible numbers and dates. And so he really helped me in the very beginning with the timeline. And once I had that out, I could kind of plug in my stories. Um, a lot of it, I had to go back and read stories and like vanity fair and to remember certain things that happened. But I think most of it was my memory of it. And I tried really hard to only tell my story mm-hmm. and nobody else's as far as that went. But also I was the whole reason I was doing it. The main reason I was doing it um, was for my kids. I wanted them to have that chunk of history that was probably going to get, you know, lost or um, be one sided. And uh, I just wanted them to have that to look back and read and like to see how like you could survive something like that and have a sense of humor about it. And like that's a huge value that I try to teach them is. Um, thinking shit's funny. That's my value. Um, and and just trying to see the bigger picture of things. So I think I intentionally kind of tried to make it like almost a historical account for my kids in some ways. You said that um, part of the stress at the beginning was that you were really trying to balance like everyone's point of view and not blame anyone and be very fair. And I wondered if where that's going was at a certain point you realized you kind of just need to tell your story or did you, uh, because my rea- my own reaction to that was like, Oh, that sounds like such a burden to be as someone who's like, str- has a struggled to like try to write a memoir many, many times. Um, like it's just, that's just a huge, uh, it's a responsibility and a burden to try to make sure that you're not stepping on any to any toes anywhere. So how did you manage that? Um, I think that, that part was really hard, but I think that because my what I see my story as is the story of somebody who um, was subjected to like predatory hospital uh, medical stuff like that. My story has always been about what the press did to us mm-hmm. and what the healthcare industry did to us and about um, for profit. That's always been my story so like my story was never like my mommy was mean or you know what i mean like we're all banded together in this we're like uh prisoners of war together like there's not we don't have i'm not trying to figure out which parent to blame like that's just not a thing we we were we're all very much um 
banded together with this experience and each other's only allies that can fully completely understand what we went through. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it that part was easier for me because I knew what part I wanted to tell and what part I saw as my story and what made me who I am. And the fact that I knew these places are still out there and this stuff is still happening. Um, but I also knew if I got real preachy and angry that nobody's going to want to read it mm-hmm. or listen to it. So that was more the line that I was trying to walk with that. Oh, is it like and, the celebrity part of it is like the sugar to bring them in to the... Uh... Not on purpose. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was part of it. I mean, I feel like some people will pick it up and be like, ooh, a juicy tell-all about Roseanne. And then they're like, oh, shit. That's not what this is at all. Like, I'm sure there's going to be people who pick it up for that reason, mm-hmm. but I don't want them to read my book anyway. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? I, I hope that they put it down and I hope they buy it first and then just don't finish it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that I think that, no, I just tried to tell my story from what it was. And that was a huge part of my story. But I don't think I was like postcards from the edge about it mm-hmm. kind of thing, because that's that's not I don't know. Most of the stuff I said in the book was already out there. It's already been talked about. So I I was also careful to not like tell anything too private that somebody else would be bothered by. My sister who we found after. um, Is that Brandy? She was. Yeah, Brandy. When she was um, 18 and I was 13, we found her. I I called her and asked her to read the part that I wrote about her because I wasn't there Mm -hmm. and it's about her and it's her story to tell. So I was also trying not to tell other people's stories, but Um, she read it and she liked it. And, um, my sister, Jessica liked everything. I had her read everything about her and, and she's like, you made me sound really cool. (laughs) She, her room was painted black. That is super cool. (laughs) She's really cool. She gets cooler in there too. But, um, yeah, she was, you know, she was a good sport about it. And I I think I was just careful to, uh, you know, those are my, it it wasn't about like telling all these inner family dynamics. That's for therapy. Mm -hmm. This is you know, a much larger story than that about the culture of celebrity and Hollywood and the press and what they do and what they did then. And yeah, I mean, you know, just the I'm like just at the part where National Enquirer breaks it to your dad that your mom has is with Tom Arnold. And I was just like, very kind of stunned i don't know why i am i still think of national Enquirer as like a rag about aliens or something like i don't think of it as a paper that actually has intel and prints it i think of it as just like a, a tabloid that's full of bullshit so i don't know that was just a very upsetting like that just sucks that they were the ones who did yeah. that that it does suck and and the other thing there are a lot of things i did not put in the book because they're not my story to tell with what happened to my dad and um and just in general um stories that i don't want to tell because some of the people involved may have gone to prison and then got out since i wrote the book um there's you know there's just sort of like things that i i didn't want to touch on also so a lot of it's inferred and if people want to know more about what it was like in the 80s and 90s um with the paparazzi stuff that all that information's out there. You oh, can, right. And the other stuff about like yeah. being hesitant to throw your, your any trash that might be interesting to people, like being hesitant to throw the mm-hmm. trash in the trash cans. And yeah. Yeah. My, and, or us pranking people like my dad threw a bunch of snotted up oh, tissue yeah. paper in there one time and put a note saying, I, you're going to catch my cold or something. Enjoy. Like that, which, yeah. 
enjoy enjoy these snotty tissues but yeah people went through our trash our teachers turned us in right um therapists therapists told things they were not supposed to tell which is you know that's a pretty big violation like you can lose your license and um oh yeah you just we couldn't trust anybody the therapist i liked that part the therapist who like wrote included a story about your family in her book and yeah. then you were like, put yeah. a story, you know, like cross my grandmother, then I'll write yeah. about you in my Bitch. book. <laughs> Except for I had to change her name. So, but I guess you can probably find that information. I was wondering, like, um, would I know who it is? I'm not asking you to say now, but would I know who this person is? Is she a famous therapist? No, but I'm sure if you like looked up a, a book talking about us in that early period of time or that year that maybe her book will pop up. Um, her name's Shirley. Shirley. I'm just kidding. I'll write that down. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, but and she wasn't a therapist, so it was like she was like a life coach equivalent. She was a self-esteem counselor or whatever, so she could do whatever she wanted because mm-hmm. everything's under that like secret umbrella or whatever. So uh, yeah, and she did use our story in a book without telling my grandma, and um, my grandma read it, and she had really like changed a lot of the details to make it look like she was the hero, which that was another thing that happened to us all the time is like everybody wanted to be the person that fixed Roseanne Barr and her crazy broken ass family that you would see on like current affair every night, like playing punk rock songs and throwing shit at the press. So. <laughs> do I you like it. do you like the show, Roseanne? Um, I think it is. It's genius. It's so the writing like I'm still like, how could it be like what, 20, 30 years old, even like 20, 30 years old between that and be that good and that relevant and that touching and that deep and smart. And I mean, I knew a lot of those writers and I knew I knew them as a child, though. And so they were like aunties and uncles. I didn't know what complicated lines they were walking or how they worked together or any of that until I was in the writer's room the last year. Um, and just like, wow, these people are amazing. And the whole way, the whole production would come together was amazing. Um, I think it's, a, I think it's a piece of art and it's, um, it's beautiful. Even the last season, I really liked it. I think I said something in my book about mm-hmm. how that was the perfect ending from my perspective, but um, yeah, I like it. I just wasn't allowed to watch it. When I was locked up, you weren't allowed to watch TV um, unless it was like Little House on the Prairie or something that you couldn't like really wrap your your uh, personality around. Like, oh, I listen to heavy metal. It's like, no, you don't. You listen to Cat Stevens 24 <laughs> seven all day, every day. That's what you listen to. So and, you know, we couldn't have our own clothes or any of that. So what did you wear? Um Really thick denim jeans, the blue, blue kind, like, you know, for people who work, um, like labory jeans, and then like a really ugly t shirt that just clung to your fat rolls mm. and big oversized sweaters. I have some pictures that I'll, I'll put up on my, um, on my Instagram account so you can see what a fashionista I was back in those <laughs> days. And then um, it was pretty bad. You mentioned in the book that you had gastric bypass at 19. Look, as someone who who my weight has been up and down and up and down and I was always an overweight kid. Um, so in no way does that define you. But of course, I am curious about that. Like what yeah, made you absolutely. decide to do it? And how, what was your experience like? I was 19 and I wanted to sleep around. So I was like, fuck, get this weight off me so I can go sleep around. That's <laughs> what inspired me. But um, I think. Like, I just wanted to be done with that struggle. I had, like, uh, been struggling with it since I was, like, eight. And 
it felt like um, it was a loaded struggle, too. It was one of the biggest issues me and my mom had whenever we talked to each other. It was like, you know, she had body issues from her childhood. So she was trying to protect me from those mm-hmm. by, like, being overbearing about everything I ate or, like, you know. And she would leave us for, like, three months at a time to go on tour. And she'd come home, we'd be super fat because my dad's, like, trying to manage all these kids. And how do you do that is you go to McDonald's three times a day, which I'm totally guilty of currently but um (laughs) that that was like how he would do it when she was gone and she would come back we'd be fatter I think she would feel like oh my god my kids are they're out of control without me and like you know she'd want to do what she could when she was home Mm -hmm. so it was like put us on diets put the list on the fridge and then go off so just like she felt like everything was taken care of and being addressed and um and, you know, I think if you don't deal with your body issues, no matter what you think you're doing, your kids get it. They pick mm-hmm. up on it and they get the body issues no matter what. So um, I just wanted to be done with it. I wanted to be done with it. And it seemed like an easy way out. And I don't like want to preach easy way outs, but I got the gastric bypass. I lost 100 pounds and I I let go of it. I just I let go of it to a point where like now I'm probably should go get a second one. Cause I'm like, I gained 10 pounds with each kid too. And I never lost it. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. I don't really care at all. I want to care, but I can't, I really just don't give a shit at all anymore. And that happened like when I was like 19, but I don't think that would happen for everybody. So I don't think that people should do that. Mm-hmm. So your experience of the surgery with like the recovery was easy enough. And then the thing where you can like only eat tiny portions after that, or else you have dumping syndrome and I don't even know exactly what that is but I can imagine yeah all that how was that experience well you learn how to you learn how to uh not trigger all that stuff but I remember I don't know if you guys know Carrie Snow she's a really funny mm-hmm. stand-up comedian very funny and worked on the um sitcom for a while she was a writer but she's also a stand-up and she was really heavy and she had the gastric bypass before I did um, my mom paid for it And then she saw me suffering the same way she did as a youth. So she was like, you should get it too. I'm going to take you to lunch and explain how great it is. So she took me to sushi and she was like, see, I can still, I I got this. I'm just eating smaller bites and I'm chewing more and I feel great. And then we get in the car and she's going to go take me home. And what happens when you have that gastric bypass is like they put a ring around your, uh, not esophagus, but like a part of your stomach. And so things will get stuck there sometimes. So like if you eat sushi, if you eat something too fast, it'll get stuck there and it hurts. It feels Mm. like when you swallow a chip wrong and it's like that. Um, And the only solution is sometimes you can wait it out and it goes away. But most of the time you end up just throwing up. And it's not like a normal throw up, like, you know, stomach flu throw up. It's just it's a lot more delicate than that. But she had to pull over like five times on the way to taking me home and puke into the gutter (laughs) in this really cute, like little single lady sports car she was driving. (laughs) And she's like, I'm so this is not a good example of what happens. And you know what it was? It was a real good example of what happens, um, because for like the next couple of years, if I wasn't careful and I didn't chew well enough, like that would happen to me, too. And it's still every once in a while kind of happen. Um, I've either eaten past the surgery to the point where it doesn't happen that much anymore, or, uh, I've learned what not to eat, but I ate like some GMO plum, like a few years ago and the skin wouldn't break down. And that it took me like for two, it was like 24 hours of me not being able to keep anything down. Oh God! I called the ER and I'm like, what do I do? They're like, you have to come in. 
Um, but every person and every nurse I talked to, I'm like, I was eating a plum and they're like, did you eat the pit? I'm like, no, I didn't eat the pit. I'm like, I had gastric bypass. I'm not like, I'm not a... I'm not a pig. Like I did not just stick my face into, I'm like, no, I didn't swallow it whole either. What happened was the right. skin won't break down. So I had to get like a endoscopy. They had to put a camera down my throat and take it out. Oh, wow. And I'm like, see, like when they took it on, I'm like, look, that is fucking skin. That is not a pit. I did not swallow a pit and right. not notice. How are, they, how are they thinking that you ate the pit without realizing it? That's hilarious. Because I was like, I had gastric bypass. They're like, oh, she's fat. She must just swallow things whole. Like that's, there's a lot of crazy mentality around, especially in the medical industry. Yeah. Just anytime you try to get anything done, they're like, oh, it's because you're fat. And you're like, are you sure that this huge tumor is because I'm fat? Like they just everything's because you're fat mm -hmm. and or you should just lose weight. And, you know, yes, um, I am tired yeah. of every single medical visit, including having to include you being weighed. I, and in fact, the last yeah. time I went just for a follow up, um, I had a what did I have some polyps removed? And I had a follow-up like two weeks later. I had been weighed like five times that month. And so mm -hmm. I said to the nurse, uh, she like led me to the scale and, you know, said, hop on. Uh, and I said, do I have to be weighed this time? And she's like, every single time. I'm like, ah. But then I recently went to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And I was like, if they try to weigh me too, I will <laughs> probably just do it because I seem to not, I seem to not be able to say I don't want to even yeah. though I know that's an option, but then they didn't even, they didn't even have a scale there, thankfully. So I appreciated that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good. I mean, I'm sure they I'm have one it. somewhere, but they didn't need me. They didn't need to take my weight down to look at my ear. Well, ear, nose and throat issues don't typically cause weight gain. Like that's usually thyroid or something else like yeah. that. I get why they're, but also if somebody like quickly gains 30 pounds for no reason, I feel like they notice and can just tell the doctor like this thing happened. You don't need to monitor me. Like I'm a, well, I a cow getting sent to the slaughterhouse. My thing, and I would like to get to this point, is to just, because it's it's just the person who's taking notes leading you back there. It's not even the doctor. I would just like to say, like, write down patient declined or whatever the right terminology is, you know, write down that I said no. And then if the doctor says to me, you know what, we really need to take your weight down this time. Like, that's fine if there's some actual yeah. medical reason. But I feel like it's mostly just a chart thing. And I think someone said yeah. as well, it's like when they're billing insurance, they need that information for that. Like they, it's, they, I think they can code it different. I don't know. Look, whoever out that there That is knows. what it is. Yeah. It's all, everything's about insurance. It's all like all of that, like um, all the labels and like the, um, they couldn't continue to draw from my insurance if I didn't have a diagnosis on my head. So they gave me like borderline personality disorder for a minute and then they changed it to depressed and they changed it to oppositional and defiant and they would change it whenever the company, the insurance company would be like, she's been there long enough for that syndrome. Right. And um, they would change your medication accordingly, too. And that, that hasn't changed. So that's what I'm saying. Like, this is all very, like, pervasive and in everything a little bit. So I would say I weighed myself at home and I'm this much and write it down in your little chart yeah. and fuck yourself. <laughs> Do that next time you go to the doctor. I want to hear. I want to hear your. Story I am going to say that. Um, <laughs> wait quickly. I just need to tell everyone about real paper. Look, every day, tens of thousands of trees are cut down to make single-use paper products that are flushed or thrown away into our over 
flowing landfills. At Real Paper, all their products are 100% plastic free and made without virgin tree fibers, meaning no new trees are cut down to make the toilet paper or paper towels. Real developed a premium sustainable alternative so that you don't have to sacrifice quality to help the planet. Making this small change can have a big impact. So far, Real Paper, and it's R-E-E-L, by the way, Real Paper has eliminated over 250,000 pieces of single-use plastics Plus, each purchase of Real helps fund access to clean sanitation around the world. Uh, and just, I just want to give a plug for their paper towels and their toilet paper. Real toilet paper, uh, it's like, it's soft enough that you are happy to use it, but it's also strong in just the way that you want it to be. Um, so it's, it's really good stuff. Real paper is, uh, available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door in 100% recyclable plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com slash best friend and sign up for a subscription using my code best friend at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order. That's real paper, R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash best friend or enter promo code best friend to get 30% off your first order. Real paper is toilet paper and paper towels that change lives. Okay. And we we are back. Um, how did you feel about uh, getting pregnant the fifth time? Um, well, the fourth time I cried and the third time I cried and the second time we were trying. Um, it, I think um, the the first time that I got pregnant, we weren't necessarily trying and I was 23. Um, we ended up getting married in Vegas when I was like three months pregnant. And then about four years later, I was like, maybe we should like do this on purpose. That was fun. And uh, we had my son Cosmo, who's 16 now. And then uh, I was on a mini pill breastfeeding mm. and I was like, I don't feel right. And then that's when I found out I was pregnant with Otis. So it was a shock, but like the happiest one ever. Like I've always wanted a big family and I always wanted five kids. And, um, and then when we put my house on the market that day, when I found out that I was pregnant, I went and got a test and I cried because I was scared. Cause I was like, how am I going to move mm-hmm. and start this new life and all that. And I, and I pulled it off. We pulled it off and it was okay. Um, so I just kind of had been like me and my husband always sort of wanted a girl. And we had talked about like, let's get some medical intervention. Cause obviously you only make boys. And we were talking about it. And then we were like, you know what? No, we got too much going on. We're fucking old. <laughs> um, we have a, like 18 year old. This was back in the day. Um, and I'm writing a book and he's starting a business. And we're, um, we're I'm like, no, we can't do it anymore. So then my husband had his own experience with like the same sort of a hard time that I had where he basically had like an ego death and just like a, a maybe midlife crisis type thing where he was not functional for a while and he got a therapist and we worked through that. And, um, it was during the time that I was writing the book. Well, somebody, um, asked if we would foster a dog. So I was like, eh, I don't know. Do we really want a dog? Do we need anything else? Saw the dog, fell in love with him. He's the most perfect dog on the planet. So we're fostering him. So my husband comes to me in the middle of this, like, you know, like in the heart of it mm-hmm. in the hardest part of his, of his experience. And he's like, please don't adopt that dog. Don't adopt the dog because I can't have one more thing on my plate. And if, if I know that we have a dog, I'm going to crumble and I can't do it. And I was like, you need to go, you need to go spend a week, 10 days by yourself. 
um, just see if you can, you know, trying to use some of the things that helped me when I was going through it and get a therapist. And so he, he was going to leave for 10 days and I had to get a new credit card for him to do that. Cause we didn't have any money. So there was just all this stuff around that right before he left, he accidentally shut the dog's tail in the door. Oh, no. The dog had to have surgery. The surgery didn't take. He had a part of his tail amputated and all the money that that costs and everything. And then while he was out of town, I think the lady called me and said, Hey, are you going to adopt that dog? Cause I got to get him. And I was like, and I called a psychic and I was like, will it be okay if I adopt the dog? And he said, yes. And so I adopted the dog and I was going to go call my husband to tell him. And I was working at the time and a lady came in and was ordering something. I was working at a small country market and, um, I was like, God, her perfume is just vile. And everybody in the room's like, we didn't smell anything. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and at at the time, my 19-year-old was working in the store with me. And I'm like, this is a small town. Everybody knows me. You have to go buy me a pregnancy test right now. So I made my 19-year-old go get one. And uh, I took it and it was negative. Oh. And I was like, okay. But that night I was like, I know if I take another one tomorrow, I know. Because I, I know myself. Mm-hmm. Next morning, I took one. It was positive. And I just sat there and cried for like two hours because I was like, how am I going to tell my husband? How am I going to put this on his plate when he can't even adopt a dog, you know? And uh, it was a rough two weeks of me not telling him and me trying to get him in the headspace where he felt okay to to talk about it. And um, when I finally did tell him, he was doing a little bit better and he was kind of happy about it. And I was like, plus, you know, this is going to be the girl because that's how it works. That's how the universe works. So I went and got the blood work done and I was sitting at home alone on my couch and I had my cell phone and my midwife texted me and she's like, I got the results back. It's a very healthy baby, which, you know, there's a concern because I was like 43 and mm-hmm. like not trying and um, thought I was done with that era. And then uh, she's like, and it's a boy. <laughs> and then I was like, OK, so I cried for another two hours. And then I was like, I'm not telling him. I, I might have told him that I'm pregnant, but I am not going to go now and tell him. He can just wait until I have this baby and he can look at and change his diaper the first time and be like, oh, OK. But I ended up telling him and it ended up being a happy event. And um, this baby is, I mean, God, he's cute. He's, he's so cute. I follow. Cute. Yeah, I've seen pictures of him. He's so cute. Yeah, he. I don't know. Like his cuteness is next level. All my kids are really cute and they're really sweet and great people. Um, my oldest is now 21 and I had my kids like, you know, 20 years, the oldest and youngest are 20 years apart. Um, so, I mean, it was a big gap and it was a shock to everybody, but this baby has like these six adults, essentially 12 and up that just (laughs) dote on him and love him. And everywhere he goes, he has, everybody loves him and he's very friendly and sweet and just like, you know, you need that light and that joy sometimes in your life. And he just came at the perfect time as everything does. Um, and, and he's great. And that was that, that's how I dealt with it. I didn't, I cried and I refused to talk about it and pretended I wasn't pregnant. Um, so I want to do just mirror everyone in a sec, but first there's just a couple, couple sort of big questions that I'm wondering. Um, how do you feel it? This is like an essay question. You don't have to make the answer an essay, though. That's how do fine. you feel about showbiz and how do you feel about the press? Those are good questions. Thank you. Nobody's asked me that yet. 
Um, I think that showbiz is art and I think that it should be seen as art. And I don't think that people who are in showbiz should be treated as if they're elected officials or, or uh, automatic idols. Um, and, you know, when, when you have that kind of setup for some reason, like we, we, uh, that's our Royal family in the U S mm-hmm. you know, our celebrities and we put them on pedestals. And then the first thing you want to do when somebody's on a pedestal is knock them off it. And, you know, that whole um, just relationship that's created, it, it's really unfair. And I see celebrities being told, like, what are you doing? You need to be grateful. You need to, right. you know, or, you know, you shouldn't have become a celebrity if you didn't want to be constantly abused and have no privacy. <laughs> and I'm like, that's like, I remember, you know, that's kind of a little bit, I called it short skirt theory, where if you didn't want to get raped, you shouldn't have walked down the street in a skirt. It's like, right. you're doing what you want to do, what feels right for you and, and pursuing this thing. And, and that doesn't give anybody a right to abuse you. And if somebody's putting you on a pedestal, they have work to do, not you. And every time I hear a celebrity apologize and say they're grateful when I'm like, why though? Why are you, why are you doing that? Um, I get real fired up and I turn off my mic because I'm, you know, it makes me really angry. I don't think that um, it's healthy for obviously the celebrities because they're just artists that are trying to do something. But it's especially not healthy for the person who is looking at mm-hmm. that person and and comparing themselves to that person, comparing themselves to the image that they have of that person, which is never the truth. And uh, like I was on a podcast yesterday and they were like, how do you do it all? And like that question, (laughs) I always want to be like, I don't, I don't do it all. I fuck everything up. I have no idea what I'm doing ever. Like I still have anxiety all the time. I've made major mistakes in my life, some recently. And, um, and I, I didn't like, I didn't do it all. Mm -hmm. I just did what was in front of me and that's what I'm doing. And that's what everybody's doing. And it's, this is the human experience. It's ugly. It's horrible. This is hell. Earth is hell. So I feel and, I'm uh, glad you said that. I feel true. that way too, especially this month. January can just oh, this suck a is, dick. Yeah. <laughs> it can suck a dick. And it, it there's, you know, I'm into astrology. So that gives me another kind of like uh, thing to look at to try to get some sort of clarity at times. Um, but yeah, it's like, I really think like, you know, if you're on planet Earth, then you have work to do. Like even yeah. the people like Gandhi, he was like sleeping with little boys just to make sure he didn't touch them and see if he could sleep with a little boy and not touch them. I didn't know that. Like there's, there's no, there's no idols on this planet. There just isn't. Um, it's like a cosmic reform school, I think. Wait, because he was tempted to sleep with little boys, or he just wanted I, it to was make something sure. like that. Like, no, everybody do your own research because I also could have totally made that up just because I hate spiritual people. But um, I no, I think there was some aspect mm-hmm. of like he was uh, tempted. So he was trying to fight the temptation. And, you know, just anybody who um, lives that kind of life in general, when I look at them, I'm like, oh, no, I, I know something about that person that you're still human. This is a human experience. And maybe like maybe when you're done with it, you get to like David Bowie off the planet. Like you're done. You get to go somewhere else and or interdimensionally who knows what happens but i think if you're here you're basically and essentially flawed mm-hmm. and here's a great forum for you to work on it because all your shit's going to be shoved in your face and every human dynamic is going to just uh make everything bigger and and remind you and you'll see patterns in your life where you just keep getting in the same situation over and over are, until you are you saying for people in showbiz it. or for 
any human. No, I'm talking about humans. Yeah. But yeah, no, people in showbiz, that's a whole nother thing. Like, what a karmic and weird experience, I think. Because I just look at my mom and I'm like, how the hell did that happen? Like, yeah, she's talented and smart and funny. But like all the rest of it, that doesn't mean that she, she doesn't owe anybody uh, being their idol. And she doesn't owe anybody having good beliefs that they don't have or having beliefs that they just don't have. Not even good. But like she doesn't owe anybody anything. You know what I mean? Elected officials owe us mm-hmm. things. Um, and so I'm always just like, wait, I get she kind of gets treated as an elected official in some ways because Hollywood is like this election process that like mm-hmm. you kind of it's the whole thing is so weird to me. The press, I think um, you're making money off of other people. You know, not always. I'm not talking about journalism. I'm talking about paparazzi mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um And when you have the power to influence reality and you choose to do it in a low vibration way and you choose to be hurtful and you choose to repeat things instead of doing your own research and you choose to just parrot the next person and not not try to see a perspective, um, then you're basically just it's just gossip and hearsay. and And that's another thing. People look at those gossip rags and magazines Um, And they're like, yeah, that's the truth. So there was something that happened um, around the time that my mom wrote that tweet that got her her fired from her show and all that, um, where some girl, like an 18-year-old girl, wrote an article online and said, Roseanne Barr, terrified of brown people. But she had, um, instead of quotation marks, she had used apostrophes. Hmm. So it wasn't really a quote, but it appeared as if. But what my mom really said, my mom said, I live in Hawaii, everybody here is brown. And it's terrifying to be labeled a racist when that's your home. Mm -hmm. Like she said something like that. And that girl took that, you know, made it a really clickable clickbait bite, just some young girl. And everybody reposted it reposted reposted and it was everywhere then i'm sitting there i'm watching the news one night and it's on the news on my local hawaii news um with this newscaster that i believe everything he says because he's handsome and so i do but he's like talking about how roseanne said she's terrified of brown people so people start coming into my work the next day and being like um i heard roseanne Barr's part owner of this place because she was and she's racist. And I was like, what is going on? Like the whole world has just gone nuts. And like, yeah. it's like feathers in a pillow you throw in the air and you can't get them back. And I don't even want to waste my energy trying to get them back. But at that point, I was like, ooh, everybody in my town knows where we live. Mm-hmm. All of the, like, I'd say 70% of the people that I'm friends with are going to take that very personally, that statement. And, uh, and I don't want them to think that I would ever say anything about them like that or that my mom would. And so I called the news channel. I'm like, uh, you got to like do something about this. And he he let me talk. He he let me get on air and talk. But I was like, I shouldn't even have to do this. I shouldn't have like you should have done some research, read the story, seen like beyond the headline and nobody's reading beyond the headlines anymore. And uh, I think that's really dangerous, especially, you know, when we have a lot of big decisions to make right now as a uh, country and com- big, large community and as earthlings. And it's really important that people, 
you know, use their brains and do their own research. And that information is out there if you want to, you know, if you want to find it. And maybe sometimes you have to read all the information and use your intuition to figure out what's real. Like, you know, there we have these senses for a reason. And um, they, it would be great if people were using those, I think. But yeah, that's like I that whole thing that happened. I was like, how did it get on the nightly news in my hometown? And then they were like, oh, um, Roseanne Barr of the and basically said the name of her address, which used to be a museum mm. in Hawaii. So they said the name. I was living there with my kids because we were renovating it. Uh, our house. And I was like, so they just said where me and my kids are staying. We have no security. It's relatively safe there. I didn't even have my dog at that point. And, um, and I just was like, Oh my God, what if somebody wanted to retaliate and was pissed off? And like, they came into my work like that. What if they come to my home like that? And, you know, just fearing for my kids that their safety would be harmed because of just negligence and stupidity and clickbait and all that. And, you know, the PTSD I have from that happening to me as a teenager, too, I'm right. I can get fired up about it. But also I have to pick my battles because I have five kids. I have stuff going on. I have friends and people I'd rather put my energy and stuff into and the advocacy work I want to get into around the um, patients rights for for teens mm-hmm. and uh, minors. So like you, you, I can't, I, I don't, I want to fight all of it, but I can't. And I think there was some, like when I was little, the paparazzi was allowed to just like, I mean, they could, they bowled me over before. Jeez. Um, they would knock me out of the way all the time. Um, there was one time unrelated to my mom that a mob of pot- paparazzi knocked my two year old over and knocked his shoe off him. And I just started ballistically screaming it was at the um at the grove and Mm. i was just standing in the middle just screaming like you're stepping on my baby you're stepping and i just like lost my shit uh it was like mario lopez doing a segment there or something but like just that kind of stuff i would love to fight it but i can't and there was like um dax shepherd and his wife Mm -hmm. um kristen bell thank you um and I think a few other people, too, like actually had some laws passed, like I think 10 years ago or something. Yes, I vaguely remember that. Yeah. And it was like you can't harass a kid for work that their parent does, which I think is great. Um, that's a start. Mm-hmm. That would have been nice, you know, 30 years ago. But I'm glad I'm glad that's happening now. What does um, your mom think of the book? Um, she likes it. Uh, she thinks it's funny. The part she told me she read it, but I don't know. If she really read the whole thing because, like, we have ADD. All of us have ADD. I don't even know that I read the whole thing to be honest. Like, they gave me the galley, and I was like, mm-hmm. and there's a couple mistakes in there because I like said I read it and I didn't. Um, it's hard for us. We're doers. It's hard for us to sit there and do that. But what she read, she liked and uh, thought was funny and. Um, I think it's also hard subject matter to cover because even if I'm completely fair and like tell all sides of the story, it's as a parent, if I had to read a story about my child going through painful experiences Mm -hmm. that I was accidentally, you know, complicit in in some way, it would be too hard for me to read. I couldn't do it. But um, I think she did read it because she referenced a couple things. But um, I don't know. We're too busy living our lives to spend too much time like I'm like oh I have to go do a podcast for two hours watch my baby <laughs> she's in the other room somewhere but um we just don't really I don't know I guess because we grew up like this and this has always been going on in summer garden our family it's just kind of like 
just another business call kind of thing. Like me writing the book was just, just another kind of thing. Um, if that makes sense. Okay. So I do a segment on this show called just me or everyone where people share things they think or do that they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? Do you have, have and have one? I probably have 10 million of them. (laughs) Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? (laughs) Is it just me or everyone that thinks that we're like hybrid alien uh, monkey people and that like everything right now is coming to a head where that's going to be revealed and then we'll know our true, uh, beginnings and then we can shift into a higher consciousness and maybe move into another dimension or is it everyone (laughs) she disappeared (laughs) i did see i just shifted into another dimension i didn't disappear um i think it's not just okay i think i was uh, apparently there sorry that's okay i think it's not just you i don't know how much it's me but I like that idea. Tony, do you find yourself thinking this, that we're hybrid monkey alien people who are about to find out what it all means? You know, I, I want a yes and, but if I'm being honest, I don't really have that thought. But imagine Sorry. if that were, I would like to believe that. I want to believe that. In fact, Jenny, when you were explaining mysticism in your book, I was like, oh my God, maybe that's what I believe in too. Yeah. I think it's what a lot of um, women believe in and don't know that they are believing in. It's really mind over matter type stuff. But I think um, I think it gets lost in translation a lot when people are trying to figure out how to use it to their advantage on physical world earth. But um, you mean dark arts? But I think if you. Yeah, dark arts are like uh, I think I said in the book, like trying to trying to get a, a Maserati and a girlfriend out of it or something. Right which I remember from when I was taking um, classes in mysticism back in the day, I was like, are, are you listening to what this person, are you listening to what the rabbi is saying? Or are you just sitting there like waiting to hear how you can get tits out of it? And <laughs> that seems to be like the majority of the people were there for that. And I was like, oh, but the more that I study, I mean, it really is, it goes hand in hand with quantum physics and the new kind of information that's coming out. And um, it makes a lot of sense. And when something makes sense, I tend to read more about it. And, um, that's definitely my, my belief system. The, the apes and monkeys part is more just cause it's funny to say out loud, but I still believe it. It's been so fun having you on the show. Can I ask Thank you, you we're, we're really done now, but can I, I mean, we're still recording, but can I ask you as a mother of five children, I have two boys, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and my two-year-old is, has not pooped in two weeks. <laughs> have you dealt with this with your kids and what did you do? He was like very ongoing constipation and then he was regular for like a really long time and I was like oh good that's behind us no pun but all of a sudden now it's back and I know that it's to the point where I should probably do a suppository but I just don't want to do that if I can avoid it I know they hate that it's so awful um firstly I would give a ton of water just make him just keep drinking the water because that is what starts it and if he's not in pain like a lot of times is he acting like he's in pain no although his tummy is a rock but like he'll it's like this yeah he'll he's actively like holding it in. Like he'll move around and then he'll all of a sudden like get on the couch and do this like kind of roll back and forth on his tummy to like stop anything from happening. 
That is, that's the big thing that kids do around that age when they realize that and bleeding, like if he's seen himself bleed recently too, you'll see oh, that they've reached that milestone where they're like freaked out that something's coming out of their body and they don't understand like flushing part of your body down the toilet like that. So maybe if you like did a little bit of like talking to him just about what it is and that it's connected to the food and that it's waste and that it's okay to get rid of it and your body doesn't need it. I think I had to deal with that with, um, not my kids, but one of my one of kids in my charge. I have like 400 um, f- uh, godchildren and and nephews and nieces and stuff. But um, yeah, I would I would make sure that water just keep feeding that water. But two weeks is like a long time too. So sometimes they'll do like they can hold it for a long time. They hold their breath till they pass out. They're just experts at free will. Yeah, which is a good thing. But if if I think it, you start there with a little bit of talking to them mm-hmm. to hear where they're coming from with it. That seems to be the solve for every parenting issue I've ever had. The kids know. They right. know what they're going through. They know what they're doing. If you can just be like, I'm listening. Now tell me what you're thinking. Even at two, I think I can, even my 18-month-old, I'm like, oh, what was that? And then you just look them in the eye. There's a lot of telepathic and like <laughs> sign language and stuff that goes on. But poor baby. Did you try all the other like? Um... Yeah, I mean, we've done prunes, we've done Miralax, we've done these little Pedialax tablets um, and fiber gummies, grapes, every every type of food that's supposed to make you go. It is insane to me how, like you're saying, they're masters of free will. I'm like, how are you? Yeah. I mean, he looks like my sister's he's like daughter pregnant. was like that. I think that just happened. And there's also like, if you get online, there's a massage that you do where you start up here and you go yes. like, around. I don't know if you've done that when yet. they were, when they, but, I knew about that when they were babies, but at yeah. this point, like if you touch, you can his, still do it. It works yeah. on adults too. Really? Like, yeah. My friend, my friend's husband's always like, give me the poo massage to, <laughs> to his wife. And she, and she does it. And it's pretty miraculous from what I hear. I haven't needed one yet, but, um, it's surprising. Kids are surprising with what they can do to themselves yeah. like that. It's pretty amazing. All right. I'm going to go in and talk to him and maybe do a poop massage. Um, <laughs> Our little book, like they have all those books about like what it is too, because maybe he's not understanding that it's not a part of his body that he's losing to. Right. Um, this was so nice having you on the show. Uh, I just want to remind Thank everyone you. I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. You can Patreon. get bonus episodes of the friend zone. That's my Patreon bonus show. Uh, there's a level where you can text it. So it's like a rewards, different levels and stuff. There's a level where you can text me and I'll text you back. You can see videos at the Thursday show. Um, we do zoom parties, all sorts of fun stuff. And if you sign up for a year, so an annual subscription, you get two months free. So it's 12 months for the price of 10. That's Patreon. If you like what you're hearing, please make sure you're subscribed or following or whatever it's called in your app of choice uh leave us a nice review and please rate the podcast if you like it even even if you don't just pretend you do thank you follow me on social media at allison rosen jenny um okay so everyone should go get this will be funny later by jenny pentland um but tell everyone plug anything you'd like to plug tell them where they can get your book etc um i think you can get it anywhere that books are um, I say go to bookshop.org just because they support um, smaller bookstores and stuff. I think that's the only thing I have to plug so far is that book. And, um, oh, you know what? Um, I would really appreciate if everybody would go follow on Twitter for now. They're um, a nonprofit called Unsilenced. Unsilenced. U-N-S-I-L-E-N-C-E-D. Um and they are a nonprofit that's actually like making changes in policy for kids, uh, talking about 
patient rights and um, for kids. And there are kids that were in places like me, and now they're actively working to shut those places down or, or force them to have transparency and stop the practices that separate kids from their parents and, um, and just all that predatory stuff that happens. Um, that's that. I would like if you would follow them and also look more into for-profit prisons and mental health care and anything that profits off people suffering yes. would be great if you would all read about that do that including being a celebrity and being paparazzi yes tony what about you well i, I feel no i wish you would have came to me first i know like, anything i, I say after I'm that this, it's tough so to I'm, follow. You know I'm gonna i'm gonna just say everything <laughs> she said i'm gonna leave myself <laughs> out of it this week <laughs> It's about time. Um, Jenny, it was so nice getting to know you. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen, you 